You had a good trip though, right? I had a great trip, yeah. It's like a second home to me because it's so like familiar to me. So I know you were watching some stuff when you were coming and going on the various flights back and forth to Taiwan. So when we come back, uh, we'll talk about those uh, those movies and uh, then we'll move on to some other stuff after that. Hello, hello, welcome to the show. This is the Extra Buttery Podcast, episode 50, the 10th episode of 2019. Thanks for coming on back and joining in again for another episode. Today on the show, we're uh, we're going to be touching on uh, a couple of the, the movies that uh, Jason was able to catch up on during his, uh, his recent trip to Taiwan. Uh, you know, all that time in the air, you got to uh, spend it doing something so uh, he's he's got a couple of little mini reviews on a couple of those things um, and then we're, we'll briefly touch on a bit of movie news some uh, some casting information about the the new uh, Christopher Nolan film and uh, uh, the new Batman film from Matt Reeves uh, but then we'll move into some discussion of John Wick chapter 3 uh, the latest in the John Wick franchise and we'll do a uh, final wrap-up discussion on Game of Thrones. I think a lot of us are kind of looking around, uh, wondering what happened there. So uh, there'll be lots to get into with that. But coming to you from Toronto, my name is Robert Snow. And joining me from Vancouver is my co-host, Jason Chen. How's it going? Good. Good. How are you? Tired? A little bit. I, I'm glad I'm back home, though, after two weeks in 30 degree weather, 80% humidity. <laughs> Have fun. <laughs> but it was a great trip. It was a great trip. I always enjoy it when I go back and it's always kind of bittersweet when I leave. Oh, but yeah. I- I'm glad to be back. It-, it was nice to take a little break. Yeah. A little break. So it's nice to be back and talking to you. Cool. Yeah. All right. Both uh, going and coming, you were catching up on a couple of movies that uh, you'd been planning to see for some time. Yeah. So with a total of 22 hours of flight time between the two flights, there's a lot of sleeping involved, obviously, but the other good part is that you get to watch quite a few films in the on the plane. They have a mix of like old and new films, so I watched three that sort of just popped up early on when I was scrolling through and just settled on films that I had been meaning to see but for whatever reason missed. I watched Crazy Heart, A Simple Favor, and American Pastoral. Okay, so the first one I saw was Crazy Heart. I've been meaning to watch that one. That's the one with Jeff Bridges and Maggie Gyllenhaal. Have you ever seen that one? No, but I've been meaning to because it's a, uh, like, Jeff Bridges won the Oscar for that, and it's directed by a guy who... Um, Scott Cooper. Yeah, that's right. So he did he did Crazy Heart, and Jeff Bridges won an Oscar for it. Then he went and made this movie called Out of the Furnace with Christian Bale. Mm-hmm. Um, then after that, he teamed up with Johnny Depp for uh, Black Mass, which wasn't very good. And uh, I think I saw his... Um, his fourth movie recently, but I, I forget what it was. I think it was a TIFF or something. But anyway, yeah, so uh, Crazy Heart was good, though. It was okay. Um, it's one of those biopics that is fully um, dependent on the lead's performance. Oh, yeah. Um, I don't I don't think the story was actually that great. I think A Star is Born is actually a better film if you're looking for, like, a romantic drama slash or a romantic drama with, like, music as a big theme. Mm-hmm. Maybe because I saw Bridges, like, a lot of Bridges' work after Crazy Heart, and a lot of them were quite well done. But looking back now, I feel like, I think maybe George Clooney or Jeremy Renner should have won. Jeremy Renner, of course, was in The Hurt Locker, which was, like, the the big one that year. 
Yeah, so if you want to see, like, a two-hour movie about, like, an old white dude who's brooding and drinking and playing guitar all the time, Crazy Heart's right up your alley. <laughs> all right. Um, I'm surprised Maggie Gyllenhaal got nominated. She was good, but I, I didn't think that role was particularly big. Oh, okay. And it's worth watching if you're into it. I just think that for two hours of your time, maybe you might want to catch up on something else first. The other movie I watched was A Simple Favor with Anna Kendrick and Blake Lively. Oh, yeah, I heard that was kind of, like, pulpy and uh, yes, fun. Yes, it is but... very pulpy, very fun, very a very much an Anna Kendrick vehicle in that, in that it features her playing this, like, awkward housewife who gets into, like, a mess of a situation, and she uses her humor, quick wit, scrappiness to solve the riddle. It was an enjoyable film. It was kind of far-fetched, but um, enjoyable, to say the least. Pretty funny in, in the parts I needed to. It was, I think... If you went in looking for, like, paint-by-color thriller, you're not going to get it because the plot twists are kind of like, whoa, what the hell's going on? I think it's an enjoyable film. I I think I enjoyed this way more than Crazy Heart. Hmm. All right. And then the third, which is, I think, a movie I had been looking forward to for a long time and I absolutely thought was, to be honest, not good at all, was American Pastoral. Oh, yeah. That was uh, Ewan McGregor's uh, directorial debut uh, based on a, what's, what's the uh, Philip Roth novel? I think so, yeah. So so it's a, it's a story about this, um, like, all-American couple. Dad was a, you know, high school hero. Mom was a beauty queen um, in New Jersey. And they have a daughter, Mary, who's played by Dakota Fanning. And she grows up to be this sort of a swept up in this anti-Vietnam fervor and she becomes she starts down this path where she becomes sort of a, a violent political activist and it follows sort of Ewan McGregor's journey in raising her, losing her, and then trying to get her back again. And from what I understand, there's a lot more um, issues and, and layers to the plot in the novel. But the film itself is, it, it was really, first of all, I think Ewan McGregor is totally wrong for the title role. Um, his range of emotion isn't as dramatic as the film needed it to be because his daughter and the things that he goes through are pretty traumatic. There are a host of issues about pacing, um, structure, and a lot of the characters I felt were underdeveloped. And so I thought for a political drama, which clocked in, I think, at less than two hours, could have been a a lot slower and methodical in its pacing and storytelling. Mm Mm-hmm. And I totally was disappointed by it because I was expecting it to be quite emotional and heavy, but it didn't really hit because from what I remember, the buzz around this, there's quite a bit of buzz around this film. Like it was sort of like a festival film. It didn't really get a big release. So for that reason, I, uh, I didn't think it was very good at all. I mean, it was like, maybe a two out of five type movie. Oh, that's disappointing. It wasn't particularly well shot. Uh, I really appreciate films in this particular period of Americana because it's very interesting. Did, but did you get the sense at all that like you and McGregor might have a future as a director, like for, for, uh, for other movies, maybe not necessarily like Roth adaptations, but I don't, I didn't see really anything that would get me excited about a Ewan McGregor directed film. Hmm. So no, I, I, if it was him being a director, it wouldn't sway me either way. I, I thought it was a very oh, okay 
I honestly, I thought it was a very mediocre first effort. Yeah, yeah, that's too bad. But moving on to like more recent news, I think you'll be excited for this one too. Chris Nolan's new film has a title. Yeah, it's called uh, Tenant. Um, not tenant as in like someone who rents an apartment, but uh, or is it French for like tenet? Oh yeah, I didn't think about that. Uh, so like, I don't even know if that's a real French word. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it does look like it might be might have come from French, but anyway, it like. Usually the word tenant refers to like like a commonly held belief or something mm-hmm. like that. It's uh it's a kind of an archaic word, you know. It, it kind of pops up more in like, you know, legal uh, or like religious um discourse, but uh leave it to Chris Nolan to leave everything to like the technical, like lean towards the technical side of things. Yeah. So yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if this somehow had some sort of special meaning and this is like again his theme of having one word titles for films oh true yeah so he you know coming off of uh, interstellar and uh, dunkirk but then even before like the the batman movies he had uh, uh the prestige well technically that's two two words um memento uh, memento yeah inception so but anyway the little bit of information that we have about this is it's going to be an international spy thriller of some description with a, a you know a classically Nolan-esque uh, large cast of lots of his recurring players, um, including uh, Robert Pattinson mm-hmm. and uh, uh, who else did they add in that? They, they did a press release recently where they kind of um, yeah. So John David Washington was oh the yes. that was announced a while ago, but um, Robert Pattinson and Aaron Taylor Johnson joined the cast. It's going to be scored by Ludwig Göransson, who just won for Black Panther, I believe. Oh yeah, okay. And that's because Hans Zimmer's busy doing Dune with uh, Denis Villeneuve. So this will be Nolan and Hoyt Van Hoytema, the cinematographer he works with all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, this will be sort of like a big spy global caper slash heist film. Um, details obviously under wraps. Warner Brothers obviously is gonna just gonna green light whatever Chris Nolan wants. So I don't even. I can't imagine this budget being anything below a hundred million. Just yeah, based on the cast and the scope, it sounds like it's going to be huge. Nolan's always got this like high mind, high brain sort of thriller or philosophy to his film, so I wouldn't be surprised if we go through that again. But at least we got the title, and I'm not exactly sure what he's referring. Do you have any guesses of what that? Um, no idea. Yeah, like I said, I mean, the the word is kind of, it, it's a bit of an archaic word. It can mm-hmm. refer to like any number of things, like legal stuff, religious stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but I mean, it's cool to see though that, you know, Robert Pattinson is kind of making his way back into the mainstream um, because... Yes, he just booked another big yeah, role. Yeah, and, and we were going to talk about that too. So he's been, I, I don't know that like Warner Brothers has come right out and, and um, 100% confirmed this, but he's apparently circling or is like the top contender for Batman in the new uh, Matt Reeves Batman that's supposed to be the um, the newest interpretation of the character following the Batfleck movies. And I think this is an awesome casting choice, actually. Yeah, so like, you know, for years, I would say like most mainstream moviegoers, when they think of Robert Pattinson, they think of Twilight. But um, what he's been busy doing in those years since the Twilight movies uh, finished up has been to seek out some of the best indie filmmakers and and even not so indie, like some of the more uh, um, 
like respected auteurs um, like David Cronenberg and the Safdie brothers and been like basically trying to hone his craft with as many different voices as he can. And he's been he's been doing some excellent work. Like I really liked him in uh, the Safdie brothers. Uh, Good time uh, a couple of years ago. Um, he was just in uh, the uh, we talked about it here on the show, actually, uh, High Life from uh, Claire Denis. And uh, he's going to be in this new one that was making a lot of uh, uh, waves at Con uh, this past week, uh, The Lighthouse from uh, Robert Eggers, who uh, who made uh, The Witch back in 2015. I think this sets the stage for a real brooding Batman. Yep. Probably the darkest Bruce Wayne we've ever seen. I'm not exactly sure how he's going to pull off Batman, but it's largely the suit itself anyway. I'm interested to see if he really bulks up for it. Yeah. Um, I, I think he has a different kind of stage presence than either Christian Bale or Valcom or any of the Batman before him because he's kind of like not really the heart of the party, but the guy who kind of lurks in the sh- in the corner a little bit. Um, maybe that's just like me remembering him from his Twilight days where he's just a lot more emo. But <laughs> I, I there's also the announcement, or I'm not sure actually if it's official or not, but it's believed that the two villains for that film are going to be Catwoman and Penguin. Yeah, I saw uh, um, one uh, headline about that, yeah. Yeah, so which is the same roster that Batman faced in Batman Returns. Right. Um, and it's always fun to have a bird and a cat, you know, and a bat. It's kind of like the animal thing going on. <laughs> But I'm legit excited for this. Uh, Matt Reeves, I thought, knocked it out of the park with the Planet of the Apes trilogy. Mm-hmm. I think he has a real sense of a drama and tension between characters. Who's the villain in that uh, Planet of the Apes? Um, the second one. Yeah, well, that was uh, Gary Oldman. Yeah. No, no, no. Not the, the bad ape. Uh, oh, bad ape. Uh, that was um, Koba. Yeah. Um, Toby. Toby Kebbell. Toby Kebbell. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So with the way they did Koba was... I think really gives me confidence that he'll treat the villains right because if anything, Batman is always a, a sort of like a uh, a reflection of his villains and they always play off each other very well. So I'm interested to see him explore that dynamic. And needless to say, I'm very happy that Be- or, uh, Ben Affleck is no longer near the franchise. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I'm sort of of two minds about that because um, in, in, a, in a series of bad movies, Ben Affleck's version of Batman was one of the better parts, which isn't saying very much because those movies are kind of bad. It would have been cool if like, if he had had the chance to kind of expand the character beyond in his own solo movie, which was the original plan. He was going to be in this Matt Reeves one before Mm -hmm. it seemed like he, he lost his taste for it. So maybe we'll never know what, uh, what that'll really look like, but they've also, they're also being a little bit cagey about what this Matt Reeves one will actually, where it'll fit in the universe, because they haven't said whether Robert Pattinson's Batman is going to be the one who appears alongside Henry Cavill and uh, Jason Momoa in future But Justice League movies. If they want to do it right, this has to be a one-shot. It cannot be tied to the DCEU. Right. I think anytime you tie a character like Batman to, to another franchise, I think it really restricts yourself in how you can explore that character. Um, but are are we sure Henry Cavill's coming back as Superman? Like, is that isn't that DCEU just like over and done with? They're just gonna move ahead. I don't with- think it's over because I mean the you know Aquaman made a crap ton of money. It it uh, it passed a billion a billion dollars, and they're they're gonna keep that going certainly. And I but are they gonna bring back Superman and Batman? I know they're gonna go ahead with Aquaman and the Flash and Wonder Woman, but are Batman and Superman gonna come back in the in the same? 
universe in the same format. I, yeah, Henry I don't know. Cavill hasn't. He, uh, it's kind of like this weird period where they 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 haven't announced any official movies uh, or release dates. So really, anything could happen. Like I imagine if they gave Henry Cavill enough money, he would come back and do it. Um, Which is, I guess, what they didn't do for Shazam. True, yeah. And, and who knows, like, uh, Henry Cavill is busy shooting a Netflix uh, show based on the, the Witcher uh, books slash video games. Right. So uh, maybe he's... The Witcher was a book? I didn't know that. Yeah, there's a whole thing there. The um, It's a Czech author, I believe, who he signed over the rights to the... Um, to the novels to adapt into a video game uh, to this company called uh, CD Projekt Red. And they apparently tried to acknowledge to him. They said, hey, we're, we're, we want to offer you a, a, a chunk of the royalties because we think this game is going to be really, really great and uh, it's going to sell a lot of copies and you might want to have a bigger chunk of the, the royalties. And he said, no, 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 just give me like a chunk of money and you know I, he didn't believe in the in the value of the project turns out that cd project red was totally right about it and they ended up making way more money than the original author of the novels ever expected and then he tried to come back around afterwards to uh, oh, no. to claim that he had been defrauded or that they had done some sort of stuff and you know classic classic industry drama kind of story but uh uh yeah so there's there's that whole thing in the background of the the witcher series but now yeah henry cavill's gonna be playing the uh, the main character in this uh netflix original oh okay interesting i didn't know that and ben affleck like he's done forever though. they but they actually said that though like i i don't think it feels like everyone's talking and, and assuming that it's the case but i don't know that ben affleck has actually said i'm done i don't think he'll ever outright say that but i think it's expected that he'll just never come back as batman I, I, I can't see him come back in any sort of capacity. I, I don't think he enjoyed playing that character. I don't think he was particularly right for that role. And I think people are just tired of mm. him as Batman, too. It's kind of like George Clooney. Like, you can tell when when certain actors are enjoying this role and or not. True, yeah. And I think he, he falls firmly in the Clooney camp and not the Keaton slash Ke- Christian Bale camp. Right. Yeah. 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 No. That. Uh, I mean. Yeah. It's. It's not like he's. Uh, he's come out and said, "Hey, I, I desperately really want to play this character." So. <laughs> yeah. Usually, like, if there's like a, a silence, radio silence, it usually means you know no. <laughs> yeah, and he's kind of waiting for his uh, non-disclosure agreement to expire before he can start slagging the uh, uh, the producers and the press. Uh, yeah, something like that. We'll definitely see what what comes of uh, DC's many like multi-pronged approach to their uh, their stable of superheroes. You know, it's it's definitely messier and more experimental than what Marvel is doing, but that's arguably just as interesting as uh, where the kind of uh, the fresh start, essentially, that Marvel's got on its uh, plate. But also talking about, like, uh, vaguely super-powered characters, uh, we've got the new movie from uh, Keanu Reeves, the, <laughs> the third uh, in the John Wick franchise. You have no idea what's coming. Mr. Wick broke the rules. I trust you understand the repercussions if he survives. John Wick, excommunicado, is now in effect. You shouldn't be here. Nice suit. Good to see you too. And this movie came out... Uh, about a week ago from the uh, from the time that we're recording this episode, have you seen both of the previous ones or, or either of them? I've seen the first one. I haven't seen the second one. Okay. 
I'm a little terrified by the second one, but I've always heard good things and I really want to watch it now. But from what I understand, this franchise could go on for longer than three films. Yeah, they've well, they've already confirmed that uh, the character's going to be back in uh, John Wick Chapter 4, which is going to come out in uh, two years' time. So, uh, oh, well, there you go. Yeah, because they, the, they've been making more and more money with every successive installment. Uh, the first one was made on like a, like a shoestring budget compared to most action movies, and it ended up making like five or six times its budget. And the second one, even more so. And now the the third one actually was the movie to uh, disrupt Avengers Endgame at the box office and take the number one slot. And what did you think? I, I liked it. I mean, the the great thing about the John Wick franchise is that it's always consistent. Um, I would say that this third one is probably just as good as the second one. It basically picks up right where the second one left off. John Wick is still on the run from a team of uh, assassins or what feels like more more like a, a city of assassins because uh, the John Wick fra- universe, uh, for those who don't know, is... It's kind of like a hyper-exaggerated version of our own. Like, we're dealing with a version of New York or a version of the world that looks and feels a lot like ours, but it seems like almost everybody is totally blasé about the existence of hitmen and hit women. <laughs> Murders and, and uh, assassinations happen constantly in this universe in super public areas. Like, people are getting stabbed in this uh, third movie right in the main uh, lobby of the Grand Central Station, and nobody around them freaks out. It's like a fully crowded Grand Central Station, and John Wick like just stabs a dude in the neck, and the crowds keep going about their business. So I think that's kind of the, that's the way the filmmakers are kind of acknowledging that we're dealing with this kind of like hyper-violent or hyper-realistic version of uh, uh, of real life, and uh, you know, this is a this is a world where there's a whole chain of hotels that cater specifically to assassins, and they have their own currency that they use to uh, reimburse each other for uh, successful assassinations, and uh, they have this sort of mythical organization that uh, heads up the whole community called the High Table, and it's this kind of rule bound society that where if you step one toe out of line, you're gonna get uh, that toe chopped off or maybe worse this third movie just keeps that intensity from the first two movies up at the exact same level you know john wick barely stops moving for the entire movie other than keanu reeves obviously are there any actors that are like sort of pervasive throughout the films or have appeared in all three films yeah so you've got uh, ian mcshane who a lot of people will know from um Deadwood and you know he's been a character actor for years he plays the manager of the uh, New York location of this continental hotel network that uh, caters to assassins so he's he's been in all three movies he's kind of like a friend of John Wick he's and then in the third movie it finds him kind of at odds with John Wick because in the world of these assassins if you do any business business in quotation marks, as in like kill anybody on the grounds of one of the Continental Hotels, you'll be excommunicated from the uh, Assassin's Guild. And uh, the hotels Mm -hmm. won't be allowed to uh, furnish you with any more weapons or give you any special services. So uh, John Wick is excommunicado and on the run from all of these people who are uh, who have a contract out on him. So he can't really hang out with Ian McShane or uh, um, enjoy any of those services anymore, uh, which makes things 
much harder for him. Mm-hmm. Um, but then in terms of other actors, you've got uh, Lance Reddick as this, uh, uh, like, barely, he barely speaks in any of these movies, but he's just the concierge of the New York hotel, and uh, um, he's super cool whenever he's on screen. Yep. Um, the war- veteran of The Wire. Yep, exactly. Uh, and you get to see him get into a gunfight in in this third movie, which was awesome. And then for other characters, we've got uh, Lawrence Fishburne, you know, a nice little Matrix reunion there between him and Keanu Reeves. He plays a uh, another kind of facet of the assassin community uh, called the uh, the Bowery King. Uh, he's like a homeless guy who has his own army of like homeless assassins. Mm-hmm. This third movie brings in a few new faces. Um, you've got Asia Kate Dillon. Uh, they're a non-binary performer, so they prefer the singular version of the pronoun they, and they've made a name for themselves on um, the Showtime show Billions with uh, Damian Lewis, this kind of uh, high finance thing. Uh, so Asia Kate Dillon appears here as this um, nameless adjudicator who comes from the mythical high table. They've got to investigate why John Wick has been able to kind of one-up the high table at pretty much every encounter. Um, and then uh, a, a favorite performer of mine, or a, I wouldn't say a favorite performer, but uh, it was fun to see this guy, Mark Dacascos, appear in this movie. Uh, he's a martial artist. He's an American guy with uh, sort of an Asian uh, heritage. Uh, but he... Wasn't he the Iron Chef guy? Oh, yeah. I think he, he might have been like a presenter on Iron Chef. Yeah. Yeah. He, he was the, the host for the longest time. Right, right. I remember him. So, yeah. So, he's, uh, he has this whole background in like reality TV as a presenter, but he's also a super well-trained martial artist. And he yes. pops up in this movie, this kind of like cult movie from 2001 called Brotherhood of the Wolf. Have you ever heard of that? Nope. So, this is a movie. It was introduced to me by a colleague of mine who's super into movies. And it's kind of like a French-financed medieval fantasy movie but with martial arts <laughs> and it's just wild and like mark tacoscos plays a uh, an, uh, an indigenous guy who's really skilled in asian martial arts it sounds really crazy coming out of coming out of my mouth but it's worth a watch because it's so unlike anything else yeah i think he made that movie and then he did a few like other martial arts things and then of course moved into into the iron chef role um, but it's cool to see him back in like a full-on martial arts uh, kind of role here and he's kind of like the secret comedian of this movie he's okay. he's got some of like the funniest lines and he's kind of got this his character's got this sort of fanboy-esque affinity for john wick and like desperately wants to be friends with him while also trying to kill him nice yeah so it uh, th- there's there's a lot to like here yeah as the host of iron chef he was known for being like super over the top with these like really big eyes and this like shaved head and <laughs> yeah he's got that stare so i i can see him being um, quite effective in, in a film like this. Yeah. But the one thing that I will say about John Wick, though, is that, and I don't know if, if some of this might have been the reason why you haven't uh, seen the second one yet, but the number of fight scenes and the length of the fight scenes in this third one kind of wears on you after a while. Not because the violence is like hyper gory or anything, because it's, it's definitely not the goriest thing I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Um, but the scenes are just a little bit too long. They kind of like... You're you're really impressed in the beginning of it because, you know, that's uh, Chad Stahelski who directs these movies. He, you know, he lets Keanu Reeves do his thing. Like, it's all very well choreographed. They shoot it in wide shots. It's all, like, technically brilliant. Um, there's no, like, fudging this with editing. Uh, these people are really doing these fights. But they kind of, they're almost, like, too excited about it. And they just let the fights go on a little bit too long. And mm-hmm. uh, there's this scene where uh, Keanu Reeves teams up with Halle Berry in... Uh, 
uh, scene in Morocco and they just get like but basically a hundred guys come after them and it's just one person getting headshot after the other and it gets to the point where you're like all right this is awesome like everything they're doing is awesome but it's almost too much awesome so it's very Tarantino not not in a Tarantino sense where he's kind of like uh, bathing in the blood or, or like enjoying himself too much it's it's not really that kind of style it's more just more awesome and more awesome like everything you're seeing is great but it's almost like you're getting a sugar rush from it like you're, you've had too much sugar mm-hmm. right yeah which whereas like tarantino is more like let's get drunk i know that uh we both love mad max but mad max does this very well in terms of balancing the length of these bat- fight scenes mm-hmm. I, I think there are certain parts where you're like okay i i feel like i need to take a break but i think george miller edited it well enough where um, you don't feel tired. You're always sort of entranced by what's happening on the screen. True. And from what I understand, John Wick 3 has a lot of practical stunts because I know Keanu Reeves does his own gunplay a lot. Yeah, uh, he trains really hard for these movies, like months at a time. There's videos of him uh, doing the the gun ranges himself with like live ammunition. So, mm-hmm. you know, you can drop this guy into a battlefield and he'll hold his own. But yeah, all of that is like, like I said, it's like technically super proficient. Mm-hmm. And there's very few filmmaking teams basically in all of Hollywood that are doing this these days uh, in terms of like real practical choreography. Right. As great as all of that is, it just feels like the movie, I mean, the movie I think is like two hours, 10 minutes. If they could have just lopped off like 10 or 15 minutes worth, it just would have been, it felt a little bit snappier, a little bit more together, as great as it all is. But moving on to finish off the episode, we really needed to touch up on Game of Thrones. Yes. Everywhere she goes, evil men die, and we cheer her for it. And she grows more powerful and more sure that she is good and right. She believes her destiny is to build a better world for everyone. If you believed that, if you truly believed it, wouldn't you kill whoever stood between you and paradise? I was in Taiwan, but I had access to it. But it was a little different because obviously I wasn't caught up in the fervor. When you're living in North America, you're kind of bombarded by all this stuff. Yeah, like your your colleagues at work are watching it. Your friends are watching it. Yeah. Yeah, it's a big water cooler topic. Yeah. I don't know if we'll ever have anything like this again. But I also wanted to get your thoughts on the final season and I think the final episode. Honestly, I'm a little bit ambivalent. I'm not angry about it you know the i'm i'm the same way as you i'm just kind of like oh okay and it i I wish that weren't the case because i can remember when i when i was really excited about this show and you know everything that it everything that it offered in terms of like the medieval fantasy but with like uh, the more adult tones the the influence or the emphasis on uh politics character development character development unfair outcomes like you know sometimes characters will just you know they they will get their arc cut off midway because that's something that might happen in a brutal medieval world right yeah so you know uh, despite all of that promise they they slowly work themselves into a corner with uh with the plotting on this uh, final season i agree I, i read a really great take on it by um, one of my favorite film critics, um, Matt Zoller Seitz, who basically pointed out that what we're seeing a lot, what we're definitely seeing in the final season of Game of Thrones is plot driving the character way more than it ever did in previous seasons. Yes. You know, whereas in previous uh, chunks of the show, 
the plot is driven by character decisions and the characters have agency and they, they decide to do things and it kind of, it sends the show kind of like skittering off into a new direction because they do something crazy or ill-advised or super noble if you're Jon Snow. But in this this eighth one, it feels more like stuff is just happening to the characters and they're just kind of like getting kind of bludgeoned by it and not really reacting or changing at all. Yeah, so I don't really have an issue of where the characters end up or their fates. Um, Mm. Other than Bran, I think I could, you know, accept all of them. Um, The only thing that kept uh, running through my head throughout the entire season and even last season too was that the writing feels rushed. Mm. I really honestly felt like if they had extended last season to 10 episodes and this season to 10 episodes or even did another six season six episode season i think a lot of the issues that people had or people had could be resolved i definitely think that the showrunners i think got tired of running game of thrones i think they wanted to move on to bigger and better things with star wars and disney yep i thought the performances were great the acting was top notch i think probably one of the best seasons ever because i i didn't find a character that was out of place I mean, if you play a character for eight seasons, you, you kind of have a good feel of where they're at. Oh, yeah. Um, the, the cinematography was great. The directing was pretty good. It's just the writing. Going into season seven, this had a chance to be like a top five all-time show. Yeah, like up there with uh, Breaking Bad. and Exactly, exactly. And based on the la- how the last two seasons went, though, it fell off the cliff and it really hurt its legacy, I think. Um, at one point, I thought this was going to go head-to-head with The Wire as HBO's greatest show, but I think The Wire has come out so far ahead still uh, that it's still untouched. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a lot of issues about how they handled certain plot points. I don't mind the fact that, spoiler alert, obviously, that Danny gets killed. I think that was a logical conclusion for them to come to, but it feels very abrupt. It feels like every character's fate, other than, you know... Yeah. Some of the side characters, even Melisandre, um, Jorah Mormont, had more meaningful, impactful deaths on a dramatic level than, say, Jaime or Cersei Lannister. I think Euron Greyjoy was a terrible character, um, like downright awful for a show of that kind of scope. <laughs> yeah, and he goes out uh, in a wimpy way too, in like a fight just, uh... that no one cares about. Um, and we wrote yeah. about this in our post too, in, in that. Euron Greyjoy makes a whole bunch of makes a whole deal of doing nothing. Hangs around Cersei's, Cersei a lot. Doesn't even kill Jaime Lannister. Uh, has this like one on one duo that's just two men writhing in pain and hitting each other with rocks. Yeah. Um. In an otherwise great episode of Danny burning down King's Landing, I know a lot of people had issues with how her character was dealt with. And from what I've read, part of the reason why it feels so abrupt, too, is that the ending was kept so closely under wraps that the characters, the the actors who played the characters didn't exactly know which direction to take their portrayals. Oh, interesting. Okay. And so, yeah. So when Danny becomes the Mad Queen, I think Amelia Clark, when she's sitting on Drogon and the bells are ringing, I thought she, that was probably the best performance she's had in that series. But 
it turns too quickly. Yeah, because, I mean, there's, the you know, people have gone back through the, the rest of the show and they've pointed out, you know, there's plenty of, of examples earlier in Danny's arc where she yes. has brushes with madness or with cruel methods and people rein her back in. So, you know, it's, it's not like a, her uh, descent into madness is totally unforeseen. But yeah, it... When when you yes. go from like you know the kind of headspace that she's in in episode three, you know the Battle of Winterfell or Battle of Ice and Fire, or whatever you want to call it, where she's you know she's triumphant, you know they've mm-hmm. beat the Night King. Then in the fourth episode, um, you know she's planning to go out back out to Dragonstone. Her second dragon is killed, which is obviously a huge blow for her right towards the end of that episode. But then right there at the beginning of the the fifth episode, she's basically like. Uh, distraught and uh, you know weepy and and then you know it all kind of unravels from there. But I yeah I feel like if um, if if they did have a, those few extra episodes where you could start to see more of her behavior starting to deteriorate, um, you know it would feel a little bit less less abrupt. Um, and I think and so. Certainly, like just m- maybe a couple of extra scenes between her and Jon Snow, so that you can kind of. Get, get a little bit deeper into how he's rejecting her and how that may be the straw that breaks the camel's back. And Yeah, and there are a lot of things about the ending that didn't make a lot of sense to me, um, especially Bran being king. I, I had predicted that Sansa would be queen of the north or something of the north, but at the same time, I thought it would be split into seven separate kingdoms. Without... Yeah, because like what happened to, the, uh, to Yara's kind of agency? You know, exactly. Her... And what the hell was Dorne doing there? I don't think Dorne was really a big part of the Seven Kingdoms to begin with. And they never tied up who sort of ran the um, the Lannisport, the Lannister lands, considering that Tyrion's the Hand of the King. I didn't like the final scene with the small council and their ridiculous um, bickering. <laughs> I think having Braun as Master of Coin is a hilarious um, sentiment. And I think, as a joke, I didn't like the fact that Again, Tyrion isn't mentioned in that book, uh, the in-show book, Song of Ice and Fire. Um, That was supposed to be a joke, but I felt it was really disrespectful towards Tyrion as a character. And as a historian, how can you not have the hand of the king for, I think, two separate rulers be omitted? I I didn't get that. Yeah, like it feels like Sam is dropping the ball on that that, uh, particular thread quite a bit. Like unless he... And he has no reason really to hate Tyrion or to want to cut him out of it, you know, other than that Yeah, and and having Bran sit on the throne, I get why they made him as the king. But now you question his motivation throughout the entire show. Like if he knew he was going to be king, I mean, he let a lot of damn people die, eh? Yeah, exactly. Like why, uh, you know, the, yeah, you begin to like work your way backwards and you you think to yourself, well, you know, if he knew he was going to be king, why did he wait at Winterfell for the, uh, for the Night King to kind of cut his way through all those people to get to him? And, why not go to and, a more defensible location further south or, you know, any number of things. Or if he was going to be king, why the hell would he tell John whose parents were? It becomes a moot point. Yeah, true. Like... logically it doesn't make any sense to me and the fact that a lot of these people just accept him as king i didn't get that either gray worm telling people to shut up and having all the agency he had in that scene and then disappearing and being like ah screw this i'm gonna sail to nath i think didn't really make a lot of sense and if you look back on it I, i feel like the most complete character arcs 
are the side characters where like Sansa, Arya, or or Arya, or like characters that didn't have a role in the in the Game of Thrones, so to speak, but for whatever reason, just seem to be treated a lot better than some of the central, more central characters. Yeah, and like even the even the final like um, confrontation between Jon Snow and uh, and Danny in the ruined throne room, like. Um, the the whole idea of like of having them embrace and then have him stab her just felt so gimmicky yeah so gimmicky like you know we've seen that so many times before they they didn't even have like a shouting match or any kind of like argument about anything you know the i have uh, you know it would almost have been better for him to like chase her through the castle or something you know or, i don't <laughs> that i don't know. have been funny i just think that for on danny's part it was really a miss to not have her have like a full interaction with cersei um, other than that that so-called negotiation at the gate. I was disappointed that we didn't get enough flashbacks. I was disappointed we didn't get to see Mira Reed or Dario or a lot of characters that they just left behind. Obviously, time is a big reason for that. Especially when Drogon, when he melted the Iron Throne, I was like, yeah, this is it. Like, the, It's going to be the seven separate kingdoms again, and it, it would lay the seeds down for further conflict in the future, which would have fit, I think, for George Martin's sort of bittersweet ending that he wanted to have. Yeah. But yeah. it was just dumb characters doing dumb things with conversations that only further plot but not develop character. It just, it kind of drove me nuts. <laughs> and I think it really ended on a mediocre tone. I don't know based on what happens now in this final episode if it's even worth watching. Um, the previous seasons because a lot of the impactful stuff that characters do in the first couple seasons namely Jamie Lannister sort of becoming a good guy all of a sudden turn back to where they are by the you know within a span of one or two episodes true yeah like his his whole thing is basically getting him back to where he was five seasons ago or something exactly so the part where he and Brienne sort of um, come to terms with each other and he reveals why he killed the Mad King. That becomes far less dramatic and impactful when you realize that at the end of the day, as he said, he doesn't give a shit about people. Yeah. And it totally betrays his characterization as someone who really thought of the people and, and has didn't hesitate to kill a tyrant. Mm -hmm. I really didn't like that part. There were some good parts, though, I have to admit, like, we finally got the Hound in the Mountain Battle. Clegane Bowl. Yeah, exactly. I thought Kyburn's death was hilarious. <laughs> um, but also, by the end, like, how did Danny's army get so huge by the end of the the King's Landing? It seems like she, like, the Dothraki were still around, which was like, yeah, the there, was, there was some confusing, like, continuity questions yeah, there. Yeah, and it know, looked the... like she had, like, 10,000 Unsullied left. And I, I didn't really get that either. And. And how Drogon could destroy, like, freaking 100 scorpions when he couldn't do so the first time Rhaegal got shot down. Shot down. Um, we were missing a final confrontation between Jon and the Night King. The way I would have done it was probably still have Arya kill the Night King. I didn't have a problem with that. But it probably should have been, like, a bigger two-on-one battle with Jon and Arya, you know, maybe teaming up as... They should have done because yeah. they're the closest siblings. I don't know what Bran was doing warging all the time. I'm of the belief that the horse that saved Arya from King's Landing was sent by Bran. I, I, you can't tell me otherwise because then it's just too damn coincidental. And Samuel Tarly, I thought, I think for a guy who had 
cemented himself as brave enough, but also as someone with like key knowledge of the history of Game of Thrones to relegate him to sort of like as a foot soldier in a battle and have his sort of key moment be a triumphant uh, White Walker killer is sort of out of character for him as well. It's just a just a lot of little things, you know. Yeah, and, and they and, all kind of pile and, up, right? And I feel yeah, like the, exactly it, it'll be it'll be interesting in like five or ten years time if David Benioff and DB Vice ever feel the need to like write a memoir or something and maybe talk about that period of of writing this these episodes because right. it would be interesting to know just where their heads were actually at if they're being honest with themselves. Have you seen the YouTube video of someone had put together like clips of the actors and their reactions yeah. when people yeah. yeah. So I I don't know if that's I don't know if they were like kind of just disappointing of the way it ended or if they were actually disgusted, but it does seem like the writers or the showrunners didn't take a lot of input from the actors who portrayed them, which I think was a wrong move on their part because these uh, actors know these characters better than anyone. I would, I would. Think. Oh yeah, you know, you're you're in that person's head for a while, and uh... and I think George R. R. Martin left the show at season five or six to work on his books. Like he he had a pig, pretty big part in 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 writing the the series um, prior to that, and. I think it goes to show that as good as your production value may be, writing is still like the tip top most important part of any production. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, sometimes the you you know, when you have the, the the weight of everyone's expectations weighing down on you as a writer, you know, it it can kind of put you in a weird space where you you want to write something that connects with you, but you also feel the the weight of the expectations and you're probably also tired out because you've been working on this same thing for over eight years and yeah i don't doubt that Arya's role against the night king and bronze role in the final season were motivated by the fact that they were popular um favorites for the people Mm -hmm. this is a show where for the first number of seasons or for you know maybe the first six seasons or so um you had a collection of characters who were playing a game but then in the final two seasons you the game is playing them you know and they're getting pushed around just by the sheer weight of all of the stuff that's come before and not because they're they're actually doing anything of their own yeah yeah that's a good way to put it it's probably not the the first time it's it's happened you know imagine if you if you went back and did like a careful look back at some of the other shows that have kind of run out of steam in their final seasons you would you would see some similar stuff and there's definitely some people out there who would make a comparison to lost you know that was another show that yeah. um, a lot of people you know they it had a lot of energy in the early seasons and then started to kind of like flag as it went along i again i've i've said this before like i still love it but um the the people who feel as though the they were kind of skating on thin ice in those final in that final season. Um, they're not wrong. There's definitely some flaws there in that show. So um, yeah, I think it, it can happen with these big mythology heavy shows where um, you know you've got you got a lot of moving pieces and uh, it's it's easy to let things slip when your kind of personal investment in it is starting to go away. But I, I'm glad it's over though. Like now I have Sunday nights free again. True. Yeah, you gotta find something else to watch. Yeah, exactly. And the one thing I want to plug is Chernobyl. Have you watched it? I saw the trailer for it on, uh, ahead of a couple of the episodes of this, and uh, yeah, it seems really cool. I like Jared Harris. Yeah. So I watched uh, the first. I haven't finished the first episode, but I watched a, a bit of it. I can tell already it's gonna be like a pretty good show. I don't know how good it'll be, 
but I, I feel like this has a lot of potential. Um, a lot of HBO shows don't get heralded as much as they do because it's specialty cable, but they just routinely crank out really great stuff. Yeah, like I, I want to be get into uh, the leftovers actually, which is uh, Damon Lindelof's show that, that he did after Lost. Um, it's got. Um, is it going to be confusing as hell? <laughs> it's it's over now. Like it it went to four or five seasons, I think, but it starred uh, Justin Thoreau and Carrie Coon, right? And uh, apparently it was it was wild and uh, surreal and uh, just very uh, it, it was it was a it was a thing. And uh, yeah, that, that would be the HBO show that I would circle back and watch uh, next if I could. But I think that covers. it. Yeah, that, that about does it for uh, for Game of Thrones. Um, you know, naturally, we have uh, plenty of wrap ups of each of the characters and their various endings, whether they, you know, bit the bullet or whether they lived uh, to the end credits. Um, that are posted up on kinetoscope.ca. So if you're curious about how uh, how we felt about each character and uh, where they ended up, you can uh, head on over to the site to check those out. Also got a new review of John Wick Chapter 3 uh, that just went live today. Uh, that's up on the site if you want a little bit more detail on my thoughts on that one. Um, and, of course, we're now in firmly within uh, summer movie season, so we've got all sorts of cool stuff coming up in the, uh, in the near future that uh, we'll be talking about. But until the next episode, my name is Robert Snow in Toronto. And my name is Jason Chen from Vancouver. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. 